This is episode 05 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, December 21st, 2010. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And I'm Aaron Williamson. What's he doing here? <laughs> he was invited. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> oh, I brought him coffee and everything, and I, but I just thought it would sound funny to say that. I've already moved from coffee to tea. My coffee wasn't good enough for you? No, I'm just done with it. <laughs> You're done with my coffee? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It just means I It made you free coffee with peppermint syrup. Yeah, no, it was delicious. All right. Made but then I, I made drink. him tea. It's fine. <laughs> I tried to make you coffee. Karen. And you both made me come here and be on this podcast. That's true. Mm-hmm. Karen didn't want my coffee. But I did want Aaron to be here for the podcast. Oddcast, cast. Okay. Sorry, I said podcast. <laughs> it's okay. I'm the only one who says, well, Karen just says it too, but we're the only ones in the world. Some, well, no, some people who write us refer to it as the oddcast. Some That's, refer to it as the cast, which I like a lot. There's people on Identic who say you should say AUD cast, oddcast for audio. Yeah, I've cast. heard that too. That's kind of dumb. No offense. <laughs> now we're going to listeners get the emails out there on, on that. <laughs> we're going to get the emails on that. You realize that? Yeah. Right? Oddcast makes as much sense as podcast, I think, more or less. It makes it's more, just, more it's, sense. It's just way. it's the difference is between what you're casting to and what you're casting. Yes. Casting from? No, you're casting on. That's why I like the idea of just calling it a cast. I like to cast a wide net. You could call it a broadcast, which is still what it is. Because it's on broadcast. Despite the newfangled technology we have, <laughs> it's certainly cast broadly. Yeah. It's not cast at all. Actually, it's not cast at all. It's pulled. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. I'm sure we could come up with a new stupid word to call it. Ogpole? (laughs) (laughs) RSS-based audio distribution system? Mm. So all of our software is vulnerable, huh? We're all we're all going to die. Only if you're running OpenBSD, right? So a very small percentage of us have potentially vulnerable software based on the word of one guy. Well, I, I actually heard rumors of this thing uh, probably six months ago. Should we summarize what this thing is for our yeah. listeners? Yeah, they hate it. They hate it when we do what we're doing. Right. right. Now. So the the thing is that uh, Theodorat, who is I guess the the dictator for life of OpenBSD. He I, left Benevolent out. Bene- was that, was that <laughs> no, I forgot the word. Um, <laughs> uh, he got an email from someone claiming to uh, have worked with contractors um, who had been paid by the FBI to insert uh, backdoors into the um, IP security stack of OpenBSD. Is that a decent summary? I th- that's what the email says. Uh, I think Theo did a good job to just simply say, I'm not good. I'm summarizing what he said, but. His attitude was, I'm not going to deal with this. I don't really think this necessarily needs to be taken seriously, but the better thing is to make it public. Everybody knows the source code is published. Take a look and see if you can find it. Right. So now some people have reacted to this saying, wow, if this is true, then this really calls into into question the whole idea of all bugs are shallow. Because if we've lived for what would it be like over 10 years now with some important backdoor in OpenBSD, then we really haven't been, you know, you know, then, then the sort of secure, the inherent security of free software isn't really playing out here. And that's, I think Glenn Moody wrote a blog post to that effect. 
Um, but you're saying you've heard these claims about GNU software as well. I've, well, I've heard these claims about lots of different free software packages that have been adopted in various different uh, industries. Uh, the claims, as I read them on the website, were so substantially similar to the claims I've heard elsewhere that I think this is probably a single-sourced rumor issue more than it is anything else. Why it's being continued continually spread, I guess, is what I mean. Uh, uh, I don't know, but it's. I don't think it's credible, and I think that we could probably bear that out. Now, with regard to your point uh, of is ha- having the source available uh, solve the problem? Well, I, it's true that at any given time, there could be all kinds of security vulnerabilities, which in fact there are. Uh, Linux is somewhat unfortunately famous for having a relatively regular, at least not remote root exploitable, but, but local user exploitable uh, root uh, access bug, for example. And, and those happen quite frequently in Linux. Uh, I think the important thing is what happens after the concern is discovered and what's able to be done. Uh, a great example is something that I lived through, which is the uh, the cracking of Savannah and the GNU FTP site before there were PGP or GPG signatures required on all GNU releases. Uh, and in fact, that's why we started requiring it. But there was a period of time there we had to think about if somebody broke into the FTP server, they could have replaced GCC version x.y.z with something with a Thompson's bug in it. And if it's in there, then it could be being propagated around the world thereafter. We basically just audited the source code and GCC developers and other developers of other GNU programs checked their local copies against what was on the FTP server to verify, did diffs and checked to make sure that it all made sense. And have that's you, how we verified. Have you talked enough about Thompson bugs on, on the Oddcast that your listeners are likely to know what that is? I think I went I through it so. once you before did. on the old show. Yeah. Um, uh, but basically that, that, that's actually, and that sort of leads to another point on this. The bigger worry I've always had is, uh, and this is the first time I've actually told this story publicly, is I once asked RMS what C compiler he used to bootstrap the first GCC. He does not remember. So if that very first compiler he used had a Thompson bug in it, and he bootstrapped the first GCC with that, and we've bootstrapped all GCCs since then with a GCC like that, we could actually have a living Thompson bug floating around every binary of GCC that no one knows about, and it's not even in the source. All our base are belonging to Thompson. Well, it wouldn't be Thompson who did it, because Thompson did it as an intellectual exercise in the old Unix code, and I sure, doubt he That's went, what he called it. Yeah, I doubt he bothered to go into whatever compiler <laughs> RMS was using in the late 80s, because he used some proprietary compiler, and he doesn't remember which one. I actually proposed at one point we have a project whereby we re-bootstrap GCC with a compiler written in assembler. Uh, and, and even RMS said that might be a little too paranoid. No, actually, I didn't propose to RMS because okay. I didn't think RMS would want to work on such a project. Right. It was RMS telling me that he didn't remember what compiler he used to bootstrap the first GCC. Yeah, worry. I mean, going back to the point um, that that Glenn Moody raised that you know that somehow um, you know w- we have this belief that free software is by definition more secure because we can all look and, and see whether there's a backdoor in it. For example, um, I think that it's sort of obviously true that that's not how that works. Um, you know, bugs get found when, when they, uh, when they have an effect on a user, right? And so if there's a, if there's an exploit in the wild, if that happens, then somebody's likely to go and take a look at that code. But if somebody is not looking at a, or working on a particular piece of code, it's likely that nobody's looking at it. If, if a piece of code is working for all of its users, then nobody's likely to revisit that code. And I mean, it's not as though people are doing 
regular security audits of their entire code base, whether in the free software or in the proprietary software world. No, right? but they do are they they are doing audits on certain pieces of the code that are you know that have could have particular security issues. True. I mean, and this is sort of one of the things that SFLC touches on in its medical devices paper, which is that, you know, it's true that software is not necessarily more secure just by being free and open, just by being published and auditable, but it it, it is likely to be safer over time because when it's being used for critical functions, people do audit it quite closely. And if there is some problem with the code, you know, as you say, it's much it's much more likely that the problem will be addressed faster because it can be looked at by by everyone. Well, and it, it's sort of ironic in a way that the rumor mongers are going after OpenBSD on this point because uh, Theo is quite fond of saying that he's he's either funded people or otherwise himself audited all the lines of OpenBSD at various times. Uh, so presumably this code has been audited since the time when they introduced this, and which means that it's probably unlikely to have these kinds of problems. Yeah, I sort of, I mean, as this sort of rumor always gets me wondering, I, I started to think about how you could how you could introduce a backdoor like this. I'm, I'm not by any means a, a computer security expert, but in, into, uh, you know, viewable, you know, free code that's available on the web, how you could do that without making it obvious that you were doing it. Because obviously you would have to take some steps to hide it, even if you thought nobody was going to be. Well, I mean, people, when they look at this, see, see I, 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 this sort of is, is a, I guess, a corollary to never, never attribute to malice what can more easily be attributed to stupidity. I, I, I hate to pick on Debian again about this, but we had probably the biggest security vulnerability happen for for Unix-like systems, certainly for Debian uh, and Ubuntu by extension, because Ubuntu, as much as they tell you it's not, is basically a derivative of Debian. Um, the, the the stuff with just screwing up about seeding the SSL library, which a guy did because he didn't understand the code. He patched out something because Valgrind warned him about it. This is a, a year and a half ago, I guess. Two, no, this is three years ago now. Um, and, that, and that was in Debian for a long time. And Debian was generating encryption keys that were often not easy not, or were often were easily guessable and that was probably a much bigger security bug and that was done by by pure error uh, and somebody who wasn't quite frankly uh, was probably was not qualified to be maintaining that package right so that's a bigger worry and that and and i think i think people getting together to try and insert backdoors is much less of a worry for the public than in the source code viewable side than just somebody doing the wrong thing and, and nobody and no, and no, no watchers watching the watchers. Yeah. I mean, I guess most projects have at least some sort of review process to, to prevent that sort of bug from getting introduced by a novice developer, right? And OpenSSL does. And this is why the OpenSSL developers were so angry at Debian because they didn't upstream the, the patch quickly enough. Is that no, it was the other way around. It was that basically Debian was carrying a patch right. that was wrong. That was a security vulnerability for many, many years. And we were all generating keys. Uh, I, I found, I think, eight keys that I had generated over that time that were vulnerable. Um, which now it checks it every time you run anything open SSL related on Debian because they don't <laughs> they check you against the blacklist yeah. uh, and the keys. I don't know if you, people notice this when they run SSL based stuff on Debian, it always checks the backlist when you st- pull blacklist of keys that were known to be vulnerable. Interesting. Um, that were generated bad without without proper seeding on the random number generator. Uh, th- 
I, I mean, I just, I find it, I find it odd that people worry, but they worry about this stuff because people like to be, quite frankly, government conspiracy theorists. They like to believe that the FBI or the NSA is is constantly trying to, uh, to manipulate the world. And I, there was a time in my life when I, I subscribed to some of those conspiracy theories. I think that they're probably mostly bunk now. I, I, I don't think that the government is trying desperately to get, um, get access to all the stuff it can. And, and the, the great the example I often give, sorry to go on about this, but the example I always give is there, there was this really classic situation that happened um, that wasn't, wasn't widely reported because it was a long time ago. In the, in the late 90s, there was actually this mobster who was using PGP. And they were able to get all his email and basically collect evidence on him merely by physical access to his computer, installing uh, installing a keyboard sniffer to get his passphrase, so then they could just decrypt everything on the other side by having a copy of the key and the passphrase. So the, the kinds of things that the government's going to do to get access to your stuff, you know, I'm more worried about somebody, if they really want to get my stuff, breaking into my hotel room when I'm at a conference and putting something on my laptop, right? That's right. the bigger worry than, oh my gosh, maybe the FBI puts some secret back door into open beings. Yeah, right. Sorry, I'm ranting now. Well, I mean, and now and now we can all take a look and see if we can find anything. I mean, I don't, I don't know that yeah. that will be easy to do. But yeah, but. my trouble, my tr my trouble with it is it's a waste of time. I mean, this is basically well, a troll. Fair. This is a this is a well formed troll uh, to force people to audit something that probably doesn't need to be audited. And they'll audit it, and probably nothing's going to come out of it. And if anybody wants an even money bet uh, that the FBI had a backdoor. Um, yeah. I'll take it. Well, maybe it's worth tracking down the rumors that um, that you heard a long time ago, or whatever it was, six months ago, um, to see if if you can find the root of those and and concretely compare them, because that would save everybody a lot of time. Anyway, why don't we take a brief musical interlude and come back with the real discussion of why Aaron's here? <laughs> There's a reason he's here. I, yeah. I thought he just showed up. <laughs> Everybody's looking at me as if I'm the one who's supposed to start. You always start after coming back from that the That is not true. For a long time, that's been true. You're a liar. I don't ever start. <laughs> you might have the one time we co-hosted when Karen I was... doubt it, though, because generally the guests don't start. No, he wasn't a guest that one time. You oh, that's You were either sick or that's true. temporary replacement co-host. And actually, he, we referred to him not as a guest, at least the last time that... Aaron was yeah. on the, yeah, on the old show, yeah. That's right. We, but then we, we, but we, then we made a big point, deal out of it. We dubbed you like special... Temp, special, special occasional co-host. Which, um, which is kind of weird that we say host in the U.S. Like, it makes a lot more sense, presenter. Does that mean everyone else out there is a parasite? Exactly. <laughs> That's the point that people make. And the, the people in the U.K. have this right because they call them presenters rather than hosts. So I'm going to be a symbiont. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> presenters. We're presenters. And you're a special... Well, actually, this time you're a guest. But you have been on the old show, special extra presenter. Vestigial presenter. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that, that but... That doesn't sound that good. <laughs> SFLC did file another amicus brief last week. Yes, we did. Thank you for getting us back on track, Karen. That's what I'm here for. Yes, so uh, last week, the Software Freedom Law Center filed a... Uh, an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief in the uh, Supreme Court in a case called Global Tech Appliances versus SEB, um, which is a patent case involving uh, 
cheap commercial deep fat fryers. <laughs> so you thought that you were uh, you were finished with this whole amicus brief thing uh, during the whole Bilski thing. I thought I was finished with deep fat. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I really thought I was finished. Now I know I'm not finished because I think we'll end up filing more in the near future. Um, I think so, too. So I guess we can go back. I, I know that we've talked about it on previous podcasts, but should we talk about what an amicus brief is? I think we should, just because it, I, I think some people don't listen to all of our episodes. Does it mean you're Scalia's special friend now? It does mean I'm Scalia's <laughs> special friend. I don't want to be Scalia's special friend. Uh, but you're also Kagan's special friend. That's true. That's, that's a little better. <laughs> it, it all sounds a little creepy, frankly. doesn't matter how much <laughs> you really like the justice. Does. Actually, the, um, there was there there was an... <laughs> On Jeopardy recently, there was a question, uh, or they give the answer, and the and the question was supposed to. Well, I forget who the person was, but the middle name was clearly Maria, and mm-hmm. the person thought it was Scalia. That somehow Scalia's <laughs> middle name was a Maria. <laughs> Scalia, <laughs> it, was, it was some Maria. other. It was some other. Maria uh, I, I, I forget who it was, but some other Supreme Court, obviously a female member of the Supreme Court, <laughs> has middle name Maria, and they they, they answered Scalia. Well, that would. That would rhyme better. Anthony Maria Scalia. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, an amicus brief uh, is is when uh, is when someone who is not a party to a case but has an interest in the outcome of the case files a brief with the court to tell the court, "Hey, we have an interest in this case. We would be affected by its outcome, so you know, consider our interest as well." And that's what we did here. And, and so, then the clerks just put them all in the trash can and they write whatever decision they're going to write. <laughs> well, so, we hope not. So we work with Evan Mogulin, or Aaron and I do, um, at SFLC. And he yeah, was a, a – well, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Um, and, and he was a su- Supreme Court clerk um, for Thurgood Marshall. And so he has all sorts of great insight as to what it what is actually going on in the Supreme Court, which is fascinating to me, you know, as a lawyer, but just – also, um, I think it, it's interesting to a layman because I, I never dreamt that, of course, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it, that in fact, a lot of these amici briefs are not read. Right. So yeah. it's really interesting. And that's part of the reason why if you take a look at it, and, and we like talking about these amicus briefs that we file because um, we can talk about them. And a lot of SFLC's work is done for clients on their behalf. And, you know, we don't have the right to talk about them. But, um, but because an advocacy brief is filed in, in, in this case and in other cases generally and not on behalf of any particular client, we can, we can talk about it. But you'll see if you take a look at it on SFLC's website that it's got these really clear headers. So like each section says like, you know, in full sort of what the point is of that section. And the reason for that is that often the clerks don't get any further than reading those sections. Right. Section uh, I, I, I didn't want to bring this up, but Karen, I, I do need to point out that you are mixing classical and church Latin pronunciation. Every time you say amicus, you said amici and then you said amicus. I said amici because usually we use the term amici to refer to more than one. Yeah, well, plural. that's the pl- that is the plural, but that's, no, but but that's classical one... pronunciation. Amici? Um, ami- amici would be the church pronunciation. Amici is classical. I said amici, and I said amici. Like and I said amici. You, then you said amicus, which is again amicus. going. It would be amicus. Amici. Mm. You have to make the C sound like yeah. K's to get classical, and the C's actually sound like hard C's when it's church. Well, we're um, all mixed sorry. up then in our our legal layman's yeah, you, pronunciation. You, you, obviously, none of you lawyers have to take Latin. Like, yeah. Why don't they have you take Latin? It's because we have to. We because the uh, more pretentious among us write a lot of Latin, but none of us actually ever pronounces it. 
Oh, well, I took Latin. So this this brief also has uh, so, ha. this brief also has the Latin mens rea in it um, because the issue at this case uh, or the issue in this case is is the state of mind you have to have to be uh, liable for inducing someone else to infringe a patent. So how do friars relate to software? Um, well, what does that have to do with a month? The Software Freedom Law Center sells a great uh, deep fat fryer. Um, it's available from Sears. Okay, that's not. <laughs> is it that's like not, the corn baller? It, 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 yeah, it is the corn baller. That was the first thing I thought of when I read this case. It's, it's legal only in Mexico. <laughs> that's for our uh, Arrested Development fans out there. Yeah, we can't get through an episode without television details uh-uh. coming in. So, so this case involved uh, a company who who wanted to make an inexpensive deep fat fryer. And um, the problem they were trying to solve, um, and this is going to be a lot of background, but it's kind of amusing and also kind of relevant, so I'll, I'll go into it. The problem they were trying to solve with their deep fat fryer is um, there is a essentially a skirt on the fryer to uh, protect the, the fryer itself from oil that spills over during the frying process. Um, historically, fryers have used a... Uh, heat resistant metal like a tempered steel for this kind of thing um but but this company um i guess it was i guess it was global tech um had developed a uh, a means of um using a plastic shield because they were able to use a thermal resistant um ring around the fryer itself to shield the uh, the plastic shield itself from the hot elements of the fryer so that it wouldn't melt during operation. So that was the invention, uh, at issue in this case. Um, so the, uh, the defendant in this case had, um, had basically bought one of the plaintiff's fryers and, um, told his engineer to copy it, um, to make something e- exactly like it. And so the engineer did that. Then they took that fryer that they had just built copied from the plaintiff's fryer and sent it to a patent lawyer and said, hey, could you uh, look at this and tell us whether it would infringe any patents? Without and, saying that they looked at other fryers. Right. Without saying that they had copied this directly from a competitor's fryer. So um, they got back clearance from the lawyer saying, I patents, um, you are free to use this design. And, uh, and then they got sued because... Um, because the, there was, in fact, uh, a patent on on this thermal ring protecting the shield of the fryer. So, as a side point, is that was that could that other lawyer get sued for malpractice for failing to find that, or is it just he screwed up and that's okay? Um, I it, it's possible. I'm not exactly sure what the what the you know sort of duty is there what the standard determining whether a, a patent lawyer in his search has has exercised sort of due care in, in doing the search so i don't i don't want to comment on that because yeah I don't and it's unclear you know I, we haven't looked at the patent itself so you know sort of when things get appealed to this level they're really just very narrow points that are at issue that are being discussed and you don't go and review necessarily all of the facts of the case. Yeah, we talked about that, I think, on episode uh, 02, I want to say. Wow. wow. Uh, but I'll, I'll link to it for sure if it's not 02. Okay. So there were spe- there were various issues in this case, but the one specifically on appeal was um, that the plaintiffs had brought a claim that uh, this friar, um, or that the defendant was guilty of inducing infringement by resellers of the friar because... Um, 
because they had had shipped their infringing fryer to say Sears. Um, I think Sears is one of the resellers. Um, and by doing so had, had induced, um, Sears to infringe the patent by selling it because you can infringe a patent by selling something, um, that infringes that patent. Now, was this available from the softer side of Sears or was this? this (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I guess this is the, the tastier side of Sears. Um, but I'm not really sure. (laughs) Yes. Um, so, so yeah, so the issue was, um, had, had this company when it, when it deliberately copied this fryer and then, you know, neglected to tell its patent lawyer that it had done so, um, was it, did it have the state of mind necessary, um, to, to be inducing infringement when it sold the fryers to these resellers? Um, so wait a second, it, it, it's patent attorney had told it you're good to go. Right. So and how, so how could they be inducing infringement? Well, so the, so the claim was, um, you know, essentially, or the, the sort of picture of the facts that was painted by the plaintiff was that they had sent this to a patent lawyer for clearance without telling him they had copied it specifically because they wanted him to not find the patent so that they could say, we didn't know about the patent. Because if they had the idea being that if they had gone and, and, and told him or if they had looked for themselves, you know, with, specifically for patents filed by the plaintiff, they would have found this patent almost surely. So there's right, so there's a new standard and an old standard mm-hmm. of what's appropriate or what would be considered um, inducement. Right. So, um, well, I, I actually want to get us a little bit on track. So what okay. in the world does this do, have to do with software patents? Is that what you were asking? <laughs> no, I was actually, I, I, I was actually, um, I thought I was actually keeping us on track by laying out what the what the legal question is here, so that we can then relate it to software. If I'm bored. I want to know what has to do with software patents. <laughs> you don't know well, talking about fried food. <laughs> um, so I like eating. I don't. Know so first, let, let's let's go let's go uh, let's take a sh- a side road and uh, talk about what it has to do with software copyrights. Okay. Because um, the the question the court asked the the parties in this case to brief for its consideration is whether the standard should be the standard that they use, the Supreme Court used in Grokster, which was the, the case that essentially determined that, uh, that Grokster, the file sharing service was inducing people to infringe copyrights. And the, uh, standard that the Supreme Court announced in that case was that, um, uh, the, the infringer had to be shown to have, uh, purposeful, culpable expression and conduct um, in order to be considered to have induced infringement. Purposeful. Purposeful, so, culpable so what, what expression and conduct. Mean? Well, yes. <laughs> that's always the question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, since, since that, that came out of a 2005 case, there isn't, there isn't necessarily a ton of, of development of that, of that particular standard. Um, but you, you can certainly glean from that word purposeful that you had to essentially intend for someone else to be infringing a patent in order or to induce. Yeah. In this case, it was copyrights. Um, and they so, just want to take that standard and just shoehorn it into patents. So this was a standard developed for copyrights, nothing to do with patents, but they wanted to just shoehorn it. Well, right into patents. what the right? Supreme court is asking is, should that really be the standard here instead of what the, what the federal circuit decided was the standard here. And what the federal circuit decided was the standard was whether the, uh, infringer was deliberately indifferent to a known risk, um, that a patent existed, basically. Indifference is very different than purposeful 
culpable behavior. Right. Well, I'm curious how, in the, so to take it back to Friars, even though I tried to get it off the Friars, how could they be either if they actually went to the trouble of asking a patent attorney? Because I imagine most companies uh, a lot of times don't even bother to do that. Well, when you, when you take an invention to a, to an attorney, a patent attorney for clearance, you are, um, you know, there is always a risk that they're not going to find a, a patent that reads on the device, no, right? I mean, if it, you knew that there was a patent that read on the device and you brought it to oh, well, yeah. an attorney hoping that, that he or she wouldn't it. find it and they didn't find it, then you would still have That's the state of mind necessary, oh, right? Sure. So the idea here was but, that- But there's, oh, wait, are you saying that wouldn't have been indifferent? That seems a little indifferent to me. Well, but that's also purposeful, right? Yeah. Well, that's a, it's, it's purposeful a, it's a, and it's indifferent. A, it's both. a stronger standard, right? To say that, you know, you must be purposeful. Right. Than um, to say mere indifference. Right. So the, the, what the court essentially decided in this case was that uh, this company only went one tiny step short of that. They had every reason to believe the court said that there was a that there that was a patent on this thing. Just to be clear, the lower court, the, the lower court, the right. federal circuit, the, the Supreme Court hasn't decided yeah. yet. Um, so they basically said that the the um, infringer had every reason to believe that there was a patent on this thing, um, but they didn't want to have actual knowledge of the patent, which is why they just sent it to a patent attorney without telling them that they had copied something because then they would have sort of, I see. yeah, I see they, they would. So they withheld that whole story of getting the engineer to copy it from their patent attorney. Right. That came out, I presume in evidence in the, right. Okay. Or, and so this is so the back pattern seems, but we haven't right. reviewed the original record. And so this is why the standard here is deliberate indifference, because it, it seems like this company was intentionally trying to uh, not learn about yeah. about patents that read on this. They wanted to show that they had done due diligence um, in searching for the patent, but they really didn't take the steps that they would have taken if they really wanted to know there is. So that was the idea. That's what the court thought here anyway. So but. Part of part of the reason that this case is problematic is that this deliberate indifference to a known risk is itself a new standard. Um, and it, the previous standard um, applied by not only this court, but the same judge um, in a in a, a case that was pending at the same time as this case was essentially um it required actual knowledge um, of, or rather it required knowledge of the patent. Um, and the court essentially got around that in this case by saying, well, knowledge can include constructive knowledge and constructive knowledge can mean if this, if the original patentee um, printed patent numbers on most of the stuff that it shipped out to market, then you would have constructive knowledge that there was a patent there. So, um, the defendant was trying to say here, well, you know, that, that standard that you announced earlier set requires actual knowledge, specific knowledge of a patent. And the court said, well, no, it could also include constructive knowledge. I, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to understand all that. Right. I, I don't, I, so, I mean, so, it, yeah. Yeah. It, it does seem a little bit tortured as far as that logic goes that you were just explaining to me. Why do you mean tortured? Well, it's tortured logic, it seems like. Well, it's like, it's like actual, I, I don't really understand how you get to this actual knowledge versus constructive knowledge thing. Well, and how is that, how is that sure related how to, the, how, and how that relates to, to indifference? Like that, that's where I think I, I haven't tried. So you're not sure what the difference between the two standards are? You're not sure how the federal court, which is the, the court below, 
came to that conclusion. I think I'm kind of lost. Is really what I'm okay, saying. yeah. I, I think I don't our, really want to admit to that. I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd imagine our listeners are kind of lost. So what what I what I'm saying is um, one of the things that the defendant argued here was, well, listen, court, federal circuit, um, in this previous case, you you admitted that um, inducing someone to infringe a patent. In order to be guilty of inducing someone to infringe a patent, you have to at least be aware that that patent exists. You have to know that there is a patent out there that, you know, that could read on this. Um, and they said, so how, if we didn't actually know the patent number, the name of the patent, we didn't specifically know this patent existed. How could we possibly meet that standard unless you're overturning that standard in this case? And the court said, well, this word no, I don't think the word no means what you think it means. They said, Knowledge can mean either specific knowledge of a patent or it can mean constructive knowledge. And in this case, they said constructive knowledge can be met um, if you were deliberately indifferent to a known risk of a patent. And this is particularly frightening if you think of it in terms of software. So if you yes. if you analogize it to software, I think, um, and, 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 and the way that these patent cases work is that if there's a ruling about a patent in an area that's completely unrelated to software, the rules have to be be the same regardless of what kind of invention is being um, granted patent um, protection. Um, and therefore, if something it affects deep fryers, it affects software too. And when you analogize this to software, it, it the analysis is a little bit different, or yeah. or certainly more frightening from our perspective. Right. So. So we, we've probably talked a lot on this show about how software patents are are unfortunately uh, blossoming um, and and are are being granted at an incredible rate by the. But sorry, and when I say software patents, I'll take a step back and say um, patents that um, can be infringed can be by infringed software implementations. by yeah software implementations. Um, so like process method yeah, patents. I, I don't know if we've talked about that on this show. We certainly talked a lot about it on the old show, and of course everyone. Right. I think our listeners all know our position. Yeah. So the opposition to these things, so-called software patents. Right. And what you know, what we often say is that there are a lot of patents out there. Um, you you know, there are a lot of patents out there that are invalid. Probably, um, we believe that patents that that can read on on uh, soft software, at least in source code form, are, are invalid because they embody uh, abstract ideas. Um, and that was our argument in our Bilski brief. Um, but, but anyway, there's a lot of them out there. And so if, if merely implementing some functionality that you are aware is in some commercial software product um, could be deliberate indifference to a known risk that a patent exists on that product, then software developers might be in a whole heap of trouble here um, under under the federal circuit standard. Yeah, I mean, it's just a little bit of a different situation when you're comparing deep fat fryers, you're talking about two two machines that, that engineers were comparing against each other. And it's a completely different situation than developers that are writing a code base to maybe implementing a feature that is in a commercial product, but that they're not, they're not copying or they're not, you know, they're not... Not even aware of. Yeah, I mean, yeah that's, and that's maybe not even aware of. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, and, and I think um, I'll probably link in the show notes to RMS's uh, speech. I'll find some version of it, either audio or uh, or written uh, essay form, uh, of this issue about how software is so different. Because the things that you have, the pro- types of problems you have to solve and the complexity of solving them are so different um, from a physical device than software. Because it, a great example here with this fryer, you have to worry about the, the, the heat. 
um, on the thing and make sure that it doesn't melt when you turn the fryer on. All this sort of, those are the type of things you don't really worry about in software. I don't, I don't have to worry that, that I mean, these days, maybe in the 60s I did, uh, that I can write a piece of code that'll cause the computer to overheat. But there are analogies for a lot of that stuff. And I, I really like Stallman's essay, um, if I'm thinking of the yeah. right one, but it's quite old and, the um, danger of software patents. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is somewhat older, right? And, yeah, yeah, um, and I, I've, I've seen some, some good criticisms of it. Um, I, I think it's worth reading. So, so I, I think I, I basically w- the worry here is, is that if this standard is, so the, sta- so the, the lower court decided that that standard was okay and declared them in infringement. Is that correct? Um, the, yeah, the lower, the lower court said this is the standard or this, you know, this is a sort of, um, an expression of what we think our standard has been all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and therefore this, this behavior was infringing. You were inducing so, these, you were inducing Sears to infringe by selling these fryers. So if the Supreme Court upheld, upholds the, this standard being applied to software would mean merely trying to implement something that worked the same as a proprietary program. If you were to infringe any patents, you'd immediately be well right? not necessarily not necessarily i mean of course of course if this standard gets upheld we're we're going to argue that it doesn't that it doesn't apply to to the situation that you're describing um because um again there most software developers when they're when they're um building something even if they know that they're you know sort of theoretically their software out there it's probably doing something similar um don't sort of have this same uh, level of understanding that this company did. Nobody is, you, you know, Rever- it, very rarely do we reverse engineer things, which I guess you mean, right? Right. Or, de- or deliberately, uh, avoid, uh, knowledge of a patent. The fact is we know there are a lot of patents out there, but that, that couldn't be enough under this standard to, well, you know, you're, you you're, I see Bradley is disagreeing with that. And I, you know, there are so many patents that it's, and it's unclear how they would apply in, in, in a number of different situations because they're so, vaguely written oftentimes and there are so many of them and we have no idea what would apply to what that trying actively to follow patents is you know for a particular piece of software right now is um is such a burdensome task well, well no one skilled in the art can actually do it um because every time i've run into a patent that i had to read i had to read it then sit down with a patent attorney go over it talk about how the claims might apply to a particular piece of software um, come to some conclusion that other patent attorneys disagreed with. I, I've never actually seen a universal discussion of a patent that, that where everyone agreed exactly how it applied to any given yeah, piece of software. And I think that's in particular what's so problematic about software patents is that they're so broadly written and ambiguous and um, no source code is uh, is published along with the patent to show its implementation. Um, so it's it's so difficult to to engage in that analysis now of course that. <laughs> the reason they don't publish source code is because that because that, that that can be uh literally that can be co- turned into math and therefore they would really be in trouble about the whole test of whether it's uh whether it's math or not i don't think that's the only reason they're well, not publishing that's, that's one major reason right i mean it's one major reason right you can't you yeah. can't list source code because if you do you're basically saying that, that this this is a mathematical idea which is what they are yeah, and if you read our, if you read the brief, you'll see that we talk about that a little bit still. Some of the language in the, in the brief comes from the Bilski brief. So if you've yeah. read the Bilski brief, reading this one will be even faster because you can just skim the stuff that you've read before. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, going back to what you said earlier about the, the fact that some briefs are never going to get read by, by a clerk, much less a justice. Um, we, uh, 
make our best effort to keep our, our amicus briefs, at least in the Supreme Court, quite short. So this one is, you know, a, a 10 pages or 11 pages total, but only, you know, maybe, no, I guess it's 11 pages of text, um, but small pages. <laughs> um, so it's, I Small encourage I encourage our readers or listeners to read it. So, Especially so you, the so you guys, where we talk about who you know who SFLC is and why we have an interest, why we should be listened to by the court. Right. So you guys did a brief. Um, are there other organizations that did a brief? Yeah, there are other organizations who did a brief. Um, I a brief. I guess I'm more interested in briefs on on our side of the question. Yeah. I'm well, sure, I'm sure lots of evil corporations did. Hilariously, the last time I checked, I I didn't see a single brief um, for the. Uh, the respondent that is you know the yeah. the party that would be for the federal circuit standard rather a lot of software companies for the um, looser standard not yeah the standard. a lot of software companies and technology companies general got uh got in on on the right side of this case um and i don't have the whole list in front of me i know that new egg yeah. um was one of them i think oh, maybe that's interesting, google they're sort of a sears in a way yeah exactly they're sense. a reseller yeah. so yeah. yeah oh that's kind of cool yeah, you could, I mean, if you wanted to, maybe, maybe if we're taking another break, you could bring up the, the, um, SCOTUS blog summary. Um, they've got a, they've got a list of all of the. But we can link to it too. Yeah, we can link to I it. I think we're uh, actually now that I've close mentioned to it. a wrap up, so. Okay. And now at this point, should we take questions from our listeners? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Operators are standing I've, by. I've heard, uh, so, somebody, somebody who did, Oh, was it, um, I think it was Phil Donahue, cause he was recently doing some press for some reason, said that the taking callers is a whole nother, like, it's so much harder to take callers than it is to have guests or stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, so, yeah, it, I don't want to do callers. It, After hearing Phil Donahue say it was hard. Right. <laughs> it, it would be nice in this, in this circumstance, because we have, you know, a fairly complicated legal issue here in this, in this brief. And I, and I think that it's, it's really difficult to try and explain the whole background and the, the issue itself um, sufficiently in the, in this amount of time, but I, which is why I encourage every everyone to read the brief. But I think that maybe the one thing that I think we could maybe do, um, maybe explain a little bit more, is the difference between uh, inducement to infringe and infringement, and what the penalties are. Because right. we're sort of talking this this test is about inducement to infringe, not about actual infringement. Right. Right. So uh, again, inducement to infringe is essentially uh, causing intentionally causing someone else to infringe a patent. Um, whereas uh, infringement, direct infringement is infringing the patent yourself by making, using, or selling um, a, an infringing article. Um, as I understand it, there's, there's no difference in, yeah. in, in the penalties. Um, essentially, That's my understanding too. Yeah, I mean, I'm you're held liable as a direct infringer if you induce infringement, which, which is another reason why um, the inducement, doctrine really needs to be limited to to situations where there's you know as we say really knowledge and and really culpable conduct yeah definitely i mean i i i think that we're in such rough shape with software patents generally right now anyway and that they're so hard to read and interpret they're written so broadly they're many times patenting what we consider to be non-patentable subject matter anyway which is what bradley's talking about about math that, you know, increasing the, or rather, I guess, decreasing the standard and therefore increasing the liability of developers is, is just not acceptable. So, um, who actually is, is on the other side of this? Um, because I've got this list up here and 
Uh, we've got that new aid one you're talking about. It seems like uh, Clearinghouse Association, which is probably some reseller, is on our side. The Business Software Alliance is on the same side of this case. Now, this I don't know Microsoft, what they're... Microsoft, Facebook, Intuit, Netflix, Overstock, SAP, they Yahoo, all be supporting HP, the EA. They're all supporting the petitioner like, we, like, yeah. uh, like you guys are. Um, right. And uh, what's the Cisco and Intel in support of reversal? In support of reversal. What's so reversal mean? It, reversal just means that they want the Supreme Court to overturn the Federal Circuit's opinion. Now, I haven't read the brief, so I I yeah. couldn't tell you on what grounds. Right. right. I mean, they think that they think that the Federal Circuit got it wrong, but the fact that it's you know for reversal doesn't. And you know, and, and then there are two briefs here that are in support of of neither party. We hate you all. <laughs> um, but you know they could this very whole well. Whole courts out of order. Exactly. That's what, that's what neither party says, right? Yeah, you could. Y- they could easily be making the same argument that we are, and just not you know throwing their weight behind one or the other party, which is you know they something don't want that's done. To be sold regardless. <laughs> um, but yeah, it looks like there are no uh, amicus briefs uh, directly in favor of the, the respondent. Time when, when, uh... Because because they, they get not get updated for some period of time. Well, at this point, all of the amicus briefs are in, so I think that this is probably the final list because ours wasn't up there until well after mm-hmm. well after the deadline. So, so what what crazy company will be on the other side of this? Um, what's that? A patent troll. A, a patent, patent troll would be troll. on the other yeah, side I mean, of this it, because yeah. a patent troll would. Any, yeah. Anyone who doesn't make anything wants patents to uh, apply as broadly yeah. as possible. They don't so, have a great so why, argument for being a Michi. So why do you think Anika's- your organization is the only organization in the free software world that's bothered to, to file an amicus brief? We're not. Oh, we're not. Red Hat was on that brief that we um, that we mentioned. Um, oh, they're not let's see. Here. Yes, they, they are. are. Oh, they're so they're they, along with other companies. Oh, they're way down there. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah they're way down there. You're, Yahoo, you're eBay, EA... General well, there, Motors. A debate of whether Red Hat's in the free software community. That's an interesting question. Okay. Well, but, uh, um, I mean, a, a, as yeah, far as why other people we know, right? I they're mean, the so, only people we know, right? I mean, I mean, other than Yahoo and Google, but they're so big, you know, that's it's sort of they're they're both. And we're a, we're a legal services organization, so we're on top of these issues. I think it's You're not, on top of that, though. <laughs> so we we follow these issues and want to make sure that the I mean that the views of the free software community are heard. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's that's why SBL seeks this. Yeah, I'm just wondering why why other why other organizations didn't bother. Or did you? I mean, I'm curious. Did you guys um, try to get? Did you feel like did, I don't know if you did this or not? I know sometimes you try to get coalitions to file together, or did you guys decide doing your own? This was um, frankly it it showed up on our radar. Um, you know, getting on toward the deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we were under a bit of time pressure ourselves with this. I think that this case flew under the radar of a lot of people, which is why you see a relatively low number of amicus briefs for a Supreme Court case, I would say. Yeah. You know, Bilski, it was just legion. Um, but here we've got maybe 15. Um, so I, I don't, I think it, 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 it's, it seems like a relatively obscure issue. Um, of course, anything that gets to the Supreme Court, um, out of patent law is worth taking, uh, taking a close look at, but. So I'm curious what, uh, if, if we're going forward, uh, do, do you think it would be better if more organizations other than yours were following this? Like, should, I mean, I'm a director of the FCF, so do, would you advise the, I, I'm not that I'm asking if you give legal advice to the FCF <laughs> on the air, but would you advise organizations like the FCF to be following as well and sort of trying to, to talk with you 
to get uh, like sh- like should this be a brief from SFLC, FSF, Apache Software Foundation? So should it be? Th- does that weight have any bearing on the Supreme Court to see a bunch of nonprofits together, or does it not really matter in the end? Um, I I think that that's it's probably open to debate whether whether a, a dog pile is mm-hmm. is going is to be more valuable. That <laughs> um, well, what you call it? Is that I, actually a no? I, no, I don't. Did you say that? No, I'm, yeah, I'm. I thought it was like here. a term of art of a dog pile, no. like dog dog pile brief is what you call it when there's too many. Right. I mean, so I've coined it. So now it is a phrase. So there's, <laughs> so you you might make the argument, for example, that if there are more briefs filed in in support of a particular party, then just the sheer number is going to make the court stand up and say, oh, there's a lot of people interested in this and 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 opposing the federal circuit's standard. Um, on the other hand, you know. If a single brief has a lot of uh, a lot of people signing on to it, they might say, "Oh, wow! It looks like there's a lot of agreement on a, a particular perspective on this issue." So, uh, I, I think that really, as much as we like to guess about what's going on inside the Supreme Court, it's pretty opaque to us. Yeah. Um, I think logistically, it's or I, I know from experience that logistically, it's very hard to get a lot of different parties to sign on to. Oh, a I've, I've brief. been in those discussions too and seen that. Yeah. It's, it's just, it slows things down immensely. And if you're on any kind of t- timetable, it's problematic. And what a lot of organizations do, and this has happened to me where other organizations have asked SFLC to sign on to their brief. They wait until it's pretty close to the deadline to give it to you. And it's in part because uh, they've been working hard up until the deadline to get it ready. But it also is because they want to say, well, take it or leave it because we don't, you know, we don't have the time to negotiate back and forth. So it's kind of, mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit of both and it depends on the situation. But what happens is that, um, is that at the, at the end of the day, they're just, you know, if there's something in there that you wish were written a little bit differently, you might not want to sign up in whole to the brief that's presented to you. So sometimes it's just easier to file on behalf of a single party. Yeah, and, and unlike, uh, with the Supreme Court and their own decisions, it doesn't really look good when, when, uh, uh, an amicus signs on to a brief um in, in part <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know we can't say well we agree with the brief from red hat in parts 3a 4b and 5d and in the conclusion yet the justices have no problem no with that no they do it more and more all the time <laughs> well a decision is a little bit different <laughs> agree advocacy of course statement <laughs> I, I i know that it would have been difficult for fsf to sign on because you guys do say free software and open source are the same thing although i do know you favor the term free software but there's a footnote that says free software is often called because well, it's very software. confusing i know i know why well, you but I, I don't think i also d- know that it would be difficult for me to convince FSF to but sign i don't think that the, the i don't think that the fsf would would disagree with us factually that Free software is often referred to some, by referred to by some people as open source. Yeah, I think they. I think that FSF would demand the wording correctly to be. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it, it doesn't matter because I think you're right that it, that it probably doesn't matter whether multiple parties have filed. Um, and the other thing I noted is is that in the introduction to what we were talking about before about how how you you try to sell the the court on why it matters. But uh, but you're very boastful of free software. I appreciate it, but it seems a little boastful to me of like free software will save the world if you do this. It yeah, no, we we do talk about how how free software is 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 essential to the modern internet and to to you know many if not most modern businesses etc et and we you know we do sort of play that up play up the importance of free software um i, I don't think incorrectly but uh, you know yeah, the it's, point, it's not incorrect it sounds you yeah know, a little bit, sound like a braggart i don't know does this does the court ever bother by that uh, like, possibly i mean it's 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 a valid criticism okay, you know the <laughs> idea is that we've got we've got the first paragraph if we're lucky to to get the court to 
to understand why why our interests are important here. And if they say, oh, well, you know, this is somebody who actually represents really important economic interests in our in in our country, then then maybe they will sit up and take notice and, and read past the the subject or the uh, section headers. Well, I read the whole thing. So I appreciate uh, I'm not on, I, I'm not a judge on any court, but Bradley Maria. Kuhn. I'm a judge in the court of public opinion. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I say. When I say on Identica, that's really going to matter. Who's the public in that sentence? <laughs> the public, the, the people who I have, I have over a thousand followers now. Nice. Which compared to like the Twitterverse is is non-existent, right? I mean, Twitter, Twitter. If you have a thousand followers, you just signed up yesterday. Right. Well, um, I, for Twitter, there are actually services out there where you can buy uh, thousands of zombie followers for uh, <laughs> for tens of dollars. Oh my! God. Uh, I don't think Identica has yet has yet reached reached the point where. Well, those services are valuable. It's because people um, people can get contracts by a number of Twitter followers these days. So yeah. it's not surprising that such services exist. That seems like borderline fraud. If you are uh, if you're oh, pitching yourself up based on your number of Twitter followers and you've actually and just you know. bought the full and followers, you, have, you purposefully <laughs> <laughs> bought a bunch of zombie followers. Indeed. Well, if you're if you're marketing a zombie movie, though. Well, I mean, <laughs> you would want zombie followers. That's that's a real target. It makes good sense. At least if it's a movie where the zombies win. You think zombies watch zombie movies? Oh, the ones where zombies win, sure. Wouldn't they? Are there movies where zombies win? I don't zombie know. movies where zombies win. There must be, right? There must be. Someone is going to write into us and tell us about all the movies where. The I really hope win. so. Yeah, yeah. There's there's probably more than one. Anyway, thanks for thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, and um, until the next brief. <laughs> well, we can have you back on for something else if you want. We sure can. Yeah, if you think of anything, I'm always happy to come by. Okay. <laughs> Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of HalfBakedMedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Please provide any feedback to Oddcast at faif.us. Because a duck may be somebody's mother. What? Because that... the fishes in the swamp, even though they may look like they. You don't brother. know the alternative lyrics to that. To what? I don't even know what we're talking about. The is song like you were just John singing, Philip which is March. That that song is. is... Maybe we're not going to let you pet our favorite pets go. I don't. What? Is, what? I don't know what. You're what? About what is now. the song called? It's. Oh, I don't know that last part. So that song is actually called "The Stars and Stripes Forever," right? Yeah. Which has some various patriotic lyrics, which I forget. Is that John Philip Sousa? I don't know. Is that even a I person's name? I think it name? is. Yes. Well, I can Google for "The Stars and Stripes." I think Forever. this is an adequate test. Yeah. The stars and stripes. Well, probably tested pretty, forever. pretty hard.